Part three of John Bull's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six A Sketch The township of Lilydale, twenty four miles from Melbourne, is one of the prettiest in the neighbourhood of that marvellous city. A small river emerges out of a wooded range into a rich flat, which, bounded by a blue horizon of distant mountains, spreads like an open fan between green hills dotted with farms, houses and churches. Built on both sides of the stream, and traversed by a railway line, the little village is fast growing in importance. One of the hills, just above, clad in a bright mantle of vines, slopes down to the main streets, and a pretty avenue of dark pines winds its way to a neat cottage, nestled amidst scented shrubs, lemon trees and vines. I had known the owners of that pretty place before they came to Australia. I have witnessed their general prosperity during three generations, a perfect epitome of colonial advancement. The old father was a head vigneron of a good-sized vineyard in Switzerland. In 1853, when the Yering plantation was to be enlarged, he and his family were engaged to take charge of it. He sold before starting a small piece of land he had in the old country, deposited on his arrival £120 in a Melbourne bank, and unconcerned by the gold mines then at their height, took quietly to his new duties with his sons. Nothing was much changed for them. Parents and children dwelt together as before, only the soil was not so hard, the climate warmer, the food better. Oh, sir, what a country! If our people had only such luck at home, the old man used to say when wiping his forehead, moist from joyful hard work, for he was a lover of work, and it was a real wonder to see him at it. Two years later on, land was offered for sale in the rich agricultural district of Kyneton, his £120 was more than trebled by the saving of the wages of the whole family, and he bought upwards of a hundred acres. Friends and relatives had followed him from Switzerland, and arrangements were made to allow him to go to his farm. With his sons, trained in his school of labour, his land was quickly broken up and cultivated. He planted fifteen acres in vines, but this was a failure. The district had not been proved. It was a thousand feet too high and subject to the spring frosts. The old man was never a grumbler. On the contrary, he thanked God for everything, was hopeful at every move, and had a civil word for everybody. At the first frost, he said, better luck next time. At the second, he sighed deeply. At the third, he was quite resigned and rooted out his vineyard. On the same year, a bushfire swept away his place, stacks, hut and all. In another country, a man in these circumstances would have been ruined. Not so in Australia. Well-paid labour was in demand everywhere, and by the rise in value of the land on which he had settled, even after being burnt out, he was from day to day becoming a richer man. But he could not live away from vines. When the township of Lilydale was put up for sale, knowing from experience that spring frosts would not injure a vineyard there, he bought, together with his sons, about ninety acres on both sides of the village. 
A few years afterwards his sons were all married and established, and he lived in a cottage amongst them. Age was coming on. He sold his farm at Kyneton, bought two acres at Hawthorne, a pretty suburb of Melbourne, little populated then, but now covered with houses. He built a small brick house and planted every spare rod of his ground with vines. There he worked as before, all day. He could not do otherwise, but it was his own choice. He made good wine which his neighbours bought. His wife, who had shared with him the life of toil, now shared the life of rest. One day, a warm summer day when he had been hoeing hard amongst his vines, he entered the cottage bade her bring him a glass of his wine, and whilst he was sitting by her side, he put his hand to his brow, said, Adieu, mon vieux, je m'en vais, and he died without a struggle. There is nothing striking in this homely narrative, yet every day of the old man's life in Australia was better and fuller than it would have been in crowded Switzerland, and in his declining days he had the feeling that his children were left as he himself was in the end, independent. His eldest son married very young, for after he had settled on his piece of land, the hill just above the township of Lilydale, he could offer a home to a wife. By the time the children were of age to learn, good schools were opened in the village. The boys, broken in by a careful father, grew up types of manliness and intelligence, able at eighteen to turn their hands to anything, driving teams, ploughing, carpentering, pruning vines and making a vintage. As had been done for him before, so did the father now do for his sons. He took the two eldest to Wangaratta, two hundred miles from Melbourne, and bought them a piece of land, to which they added by free selection. One of them, married at twenty-one, has now his farm, his vineyard, his wife and two children. Had the grandfather remained in the old country, the value of his small piece of land would not have augmented, and if they had divided it, his three sons, with a few purchased to each, would not have reared the twenty-three children they count among them. Villages are formed every day, even now, and new lands are broken up. A man who purchases in a new township an allotment of land for £50 per acre, or land at some distance from it for £2 or so per acre, may count upon seeing in his lifetime the value of the former counted by hundreds, and that of the latter increased fourfold. Hence the comfort which, as it should be always in this world of hardships, surely accrues to the Australian farmer whilst he advances in age. At first there is nothing but a slab hut, perhaps only a kitchen and two rooms. The boys have their bunks under skillions or sheds, and they can count at night the bright stars in the deep sky through the rifts in the bark of the roof. There is no other conveyance for the wife and the daughters but the rough jolting dray. Yet, all the while, with plenty of land, everything increases. The fowls, the pigs, the cattle, the dairy and the crops... Fruit trees bear early. Apples, pears, plums, lemons are sent to market. Above all, everywhere in this anthill of activity, the local boards, taxing property heavily, make roads, form culverts, construct bridges, 
and the small owner cannot complain, for if he have his share of the burden, he has the benefit of the outlay. It is he generally who contracts for these works. The money spent on them comes back to him, both by the increased value of his farm and by the improvements he is able to make. Is it surprising if, on Sunday mornings, the light buggies of the farmers roll now merrily on along the well-made roads to village churches, filled with well-dressed children, where a few years ago bullock teams and heavy drays were toiling in deep furrows of mud? I am afraid I repeat myself, but in this rural etude, like in a song, Ein Traubenlied, allow the joyous theme, freedom, air, warmth and happiness to come back in various keys. Chapter 7. Free Selection The mode of disposing of crown lands in Victoria has undergone numerous changes. During the first 24 years of the colony, land was alienated by actual sale, mostly in large blocks, which, purchased by far-seeing men who secured to themselves the best tracts of the whole country, laid the foundations of the princely fortunes of the present large Victorian landowners. In 1862, agricultural areas were proclaimed open for free selection. Within these, Land could be selected at an uniform price of £1 per acre, being limited to 640 acres to one man in the same year. Half the purchase money was to be paid down, the rest by yearly instalments. In the amended Land Act, 1869, the area allowed to be selected by one person was limited to 320 acres, but the payment in cash was done away with. It was provided that the selection should be under licence during the first three years, the rent payable being two shillings per acre per annum, which was credited to the selector as part payment of the principal. During these three years, the selector was obliged to reside on his selection, to enclose it, and generally to effect substantial improvements to the value of one pound per acre. At the expiration of the three years' licence, the selector, if he obtained a certificate from the Board of Lands that he had complied with these conditions, could either purchase his holding at once, or might convert his licence into a lease extending over seven years at an annual rental of two shillings per acre, which was also credited as part payment of the fee simple. On the expiry of such lease and due payment of the rent, the land became the freehold of the selector, in the main, the Land Act of 1869 is still in force, with amendments in 1878 by which the period the land is held under lease is increased from three years to six years, and the time for compulsory residence from three to five years. On the other hand, the facilities for payment are greatly increased. The annual rental per acre is reduced from two shillings to one shilling, thereby allowing it to extend over a period of 20 years, instead of 10 as formerly. The Land Act, as amended in 1878, contains also provisions for selection by persons who need not reside on their selections. In such cases, however, the rent is two shillings per acre and the total price to be paid for the land is two pounds per acre. At the present moment, 1886, the whole area of land 
actually alienated in fee simple in Victoria, is about 15 millions of acres, of which one half was acquired by selection under the system of deferred payments. Another 7 millions of acres are now held by selectors under the above conditions, still in course of fulfilment. Therefore, out of the whole of 22 millions of acres actually in the hands of the colonists of Victoria, nearly two-thirds, 14 millions of acres, are held by people who entered their homes under these liberal and equitable conditions. To them, the country is alma mater indeed. They began life with her, whilst she was poor and rugged, but as time passed by, as wealth has accrued to the mother, her sons, to whom the advance is due, have obtained their just share of the increment. No doubt the best lands of Victoria are now in possession of the people. Still, there are millions of acres available for selection, even after deduction of the mountain forest lands. The colony's estate can yet be parcelled out to men in want of homes. If the first arrived have chosen the richest lands, the men who may come now find the country developed, and they benefit by the work of their predecessors. Chapter 8. At Great Western Great Western is a small township of 400 inhabitants and a railway station, 170 miles north of Melbourne. Free selection and wines have made it. Just as the train emerges out of the silent bush and slackens to arrive at the station, you pass through some good-sized and well-kept vineyards, the straight rows of which abut on both sides of the iron road. When the train stops, you have the village before you, new brick houses intermingled with deep-toned wooden cottages, trim little hotels, the school and courthouses, orchards and gardens, clean gravelly roads and paths. A picture of neatness steeped in warmth, framed all around by the bright red soil of the vineyards sloping from the gun-timbered hills which encircle the township. The nearest vineyard, that of Mr. Best, about sixty acres in extent, is only five minutes' walk from the station. I alighted there some time ago, anxious to become acquainted with the work and the ways of my fellow growers. The owner, an old bachelor, gave me a hearty welcome, made me share his dinner and showed me over his establishment. From the colour of the soil you may judge of its fertility and adaptability to the cultivation of the vine. Yellow, red and brown soil, especially if it be a mixture of clay, of sand and gravel or rotten stones, is the most productive, the colours mentioned indicating the presence of some peroxide of iron. White, sandy and stony soil produces much less, but gives fine wine. Of all, the best is a grey soil, loam and gravel on a sandy clay. It secures both quantity and quality. In the Great Western District, as in the greater portion of the territory of Victoria, in the whole of the land north of the dividing ranges and of the Australian Pyrenees, on the Gulban and in the vast plains of the Murray, the soil varies from rich brown to red and yellow. Occasionally only, you meet with grey patches of soil planted in vines. In these warm regions, the soil stiff and adhesive, if not broken up, becomes, after being worked with the plough and scarifier, soft and pliable. 
weeds have no chance to grow in it. The heat develops an immense vegetation in the vines, and the vigneron has nothing to wish for except rain. After I had admired the vigour of the plants in the vineyard, the size and length of the shoots tied to the trellises, my host took me to his cellars. A new brick building, containing all modern implements and about thirty casks of six hundred gallons each, attested its prosperity. But the principal interest was the oldest part of the cellars, excavated in the soil at a considerable depth. The subsoil in that part of the great western district is a compact and soft granite, which can be worked with the greatest ease. From the new building, a long staircase cut in the soft rock took us into the underground cellars, dans les entrailles de la terre. These were long passages about five feet broad, seven feet high, and one hundred and fifty feet in length, in which, on both sides, hogsheads and quarter casks, sometimes a heap of bottles, were placed in recesses cut again in the granite. The whole, as you walked about with a taper in hand, reminding you of the catacombs. There were four of these galleries united by three cross ones at right angles. They contained some three hundred barrels. About ten yards of solid rock separated each of these galleries. A white and compact mass without a fissure, without a trace of humidity. Now and then, a square hole in the vault above, communicating with the outside, gave air and a little light below. It was through these holes that the granite excavated had been hoisted away. When room was wanted to lodge a cask of wine, a workman was sent below with a pick, and in a few hours a new recess was hollowed on the side of the gallery, in course not of construction but of prolongation. My host, when he had nothing else to be done, sent his men to extend his subterraneous labyrinth. As it was, it would have been awkward for a stranger to find his way out, and certainly, if, instead of a building of bricks above, the old system had been continued, Ariadne's thread would have been absolutely wanted. There were venerable quarter casks lying there, brown and dusty in their niches, like the dead cappuccini in their burial chambers, minus the ghastly appearance. Some contained seven or eight years old wines of great vigour and quality. When we came out of these vaults, as it was the 24th of May, a day of rejoicing in all British possessions, the Queen's birthday, we wended our way towards a park-like glen, where a day's racing was to assemble the farmers of the neighbourhood. Large gum trees, their white trunks spotted over with yellow, lilac and orange, huge peppermint trees, their long classical branches finely delineated through a thick spray of drooping leaves, and a few bronzed oaks were dotted about in clumps over the gently undulating ground. The soft silver green, the malachite tone of the feathery foliage, formed with the pale yellow of the autumnal grass and the madder tints of the bluish shades, a harmony that only a coro could have rendered. Unfortunately, it had rained all the morning, a rare and welcome occurrence in that district, and it was still gently drizzling. Three or four young farmers only had been zealous enough to bring their horses, and but a dozen idlers were sufficiently confident to face the wet weather. 
Mr. Best told me that probably all those who had intended to attend the races would be found close by at the vineyards of some French growers. We crossed the railway lines and we soon arrived at their place. End of part three.